electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, a second-half surge. Fast Money friend Tom Lee is here with his outlook for 2022, why he thinks the biggest gains may not come until Q3 of next year. Plus, Jack Dorsey takes on Web3, what the Block CEO had to say about the next generation of networking and what it means for the stocks involved. And a big bounce for China Tech. K-Web approaching a key level, according to one of our traders. But is it time to jump in, or should you continue? to tread lightly. We start off tonight with a big bounce for stocks. The major indices clawing back their losses from yesterday. The S&P 500 up nearly 2%. The Nasdaq almost 2.5%. Energy, technology, consumer stocks leading the game today. Check out some of the moves in the reopening stocks. Those are strong. Expedia, Norwegian, Live Nation, and others all seeing outsized gains. So do these big moves suggest the worst is behind us? Guy, how do you digest this all? Well, if you watched Fast Money last night, Mel, which I know you did because you hosted it, we actually alluded to this. And listen, as you know, I'm wrong constantly, but we got this one right last night collectively. And we said a number of things. We said, look, on the positive front, the IWM protected critical support, as did the XRT, as did the S&P 500. We actually talked about that prior all-time high of 4530. We traded down, we bounced. We said the VIX sold off late. All things pointed to a rebound. Now, I will tell you, I didn't think we'd have the rebound we had today, but here we are. And I think it's going to continue to grind higher into the new year. Not because I'm crazy bullish, because I've seen this movie before and I see what happens this time of year. And I thought what was interesting last night, Jeff Mills talked about it, the fact that the airlines had a big day, names Mm -hmm. like Expedia had a decent day, and they built on it again. I'll say this and then I'll stop talking. The airlines all topped out in April, long before anybody heard of a variant. Now they're starting to turn now. Makes you wonder what they knew then and what they know now. Oh, interesting. Um, we, were, we were commenting yesterday that the message of the market wasn't a clear one in terms of virus on, virus off. However you want to put it, we did have Carnival, for instance, Lyft, American Airlines. We had those go higher. We had the Staples go higher. It's almost the same thing today, Dan. I mean, we had technology. We had energy. We had industrials. We had financials. I mean, so many things were up that don't necessarily mean risk on, risk off or value versus growth. Yeah, you know, Guy is right. I think that a few of them, I was not in that camp, were saying that it it is on. And we were talking about Tom Lee. I know Tom's going to come on in a second, but he was talking about pinpointing today is the day when it starts. The Santa Claus rally, um, a little too granular for me and and what I can do in the markets, but he nailed it. Um, I'll just say this. This morning, what I was looking at very closely were those mega cap names, and they were underperforming. So I was thinking, okay, maybe we start to see a little bit more bifurcation. We'll see money move back into those sort of reflation or those reopening trades. But then it just became a full on, you know, just panic buy here in the close on the very highs. And so if we were open a couple more hours, we might have been up another 2%. So to these guys' points, it's really hard to fade this in what might be a sort of low volume period over the next week. And, and just let's remember, you know, the S&P 500 was still up 20% on the opening today before we got that big surge. So, you know, listen, I don't buy moves like this because to me, I think the higher we go into year end is the harder we 
we fall in January. And I think that's the best setup for equities as we head into next year. We had some really interesting and really strong moves in a diverse set of sectors. And, and Tim, I'm curious what you think could be head fake rallies versus real ones into 2022. Well, I, I think the, the move in the financials, so over 2% on the XLF, um, you know, yesterday you had the trade, actually intraday today, you had the trade below the 200-day. And I talk about this a lot when they trade through to the downside. When was the last time you did that? And that was back in November of last year. Um, so in other words, financials, even for the struggles with the yield curve, ha- had really held above these levels, although had been, had, you know, weakening trend lines. And so, you know, when you see back to where financials went uh, in November after they traded below there and they consolidated, and again, we had a bit of a growth scare back then. They traded up 50% in the next six months. I don't think financials have that in them, but we've also talked how financials seem to bridge uh, the gap between people that are concerned about high multiples. And, and I think stocks that have very solid fundamentals and, and could be positioned for a slower growth environment. I, I, when you look at, we're going to spend a lot of time with semiconductors. I'll just talk about the high multiple stocks of which semis fit in that space. You know, the intraday low to the close today, that was a 5% move. Again, in, in, in less than, you know, I, I think nine, nine hours. Hours or, or just under 10 trading hours. So the moves for a lot of folks who woke up yesterday morning, saw futures down significantly and said this might be that moment. Back to Santa Claus. Look, I, I think the Santa Claus rally was the low from October 4th through uh, December, you know, early December when we went 11 and a half percent up on the S&P. Um, that was the move. Uh, it isn't to say, Guy talks about the last week of the year, uh, a lot of you know, a lot of funky stuff goes on, often good. Um, but I think you have to be careful. Again, today is about, to me, um, putting the Fed at least on the sidelines for now, because I don't think the market is concerned about opening or closing. I, I think these, these reopening trades are ones that you continue to follow. In, in what category, Jeff, would you put this steepening of the yield curve that we've seen over the past 24 hours? Is that for real? Does it stick? Or is that a head fake? You know, I think it's so hard to pull narratives out of what's going on in the market right now. I think it was hard to pull a narrative out of yesterday, just given the leadership. I think it was hard to pull one out of today. I think it was hard to decipher the message between yesterday and today. So it's difficult. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm sort of in the camp where I don't think we can guarantee that the worst is over here. Um, I, I do think headlines are going to get worse relative to case counts. I said it yesterday. I don't know that that's necessarily the best measure in terms of where we are with the pandemic. That's why I mentioned 4,300 as support. I don't know if we get there, but I certainly think it's possible. But the real message is soon enough, you know, markets aren't going to care. We're going to get desensitized to those headlines once again. So you should be buying the dip. And to go back to what was t- Tim was talking about in terms of financials, where might the opportunities be, you know, really over the next quarter, let's say, I do think that it's cyclicals. I still prefer that growth, that profitable growth trade for in the entirety of 2022. But look at financials, look at energy. Um, financials, just as an example, less than 20% of financials above their 50-day moving average. That's oversold. So I think as the cloud of Omicron lifts, I think we can get another run in those types of companies. We had Nike earnings yesterday, so demand is still strong. So I'm focusing on things like that, at least for the time being. What was that staff, staff, uh, stat, Jeff? Uh, 50% is are below their what? Less, less, less. Less than 20% of financials are above their 50-day moving average. So you have a lot of weakness there to the point where, you know, that sector would be considered oversold by by a pretty reasonable degree, statistically significant at this point. Okay. Uh, Or maybe they're at that level, at those levels for a reason, Guy. What do you think? 
Well, that's like an SAT question that I used to look at and then skip because I had no idea what people were talking about. I'll say this. <laughs> Jeff brings up a great point. There's certain banks that just stick out like a sore thumb. And I understand what's been going on with Citi. Obviously, some exposure to Europe has been a concern. But when Citi trades down to, you know, close to 70 percent of tangible book value, there's something going on. And I think that what's going on historically has been a huge buying opportunity for a trade. So I think Jeff is right to point it out. I think it's also right to point out names that have just languished and have a chance for a bounce early in the next year. Dan? Yeah, well, I'll just say this. I mean, like, here, uh, look at your XRT. Guy had been mentioning it last night, the retailers, and look at the sell-off that they had. And when you look at banks, maybe they are mal signaling something. I'll just say this on a personal note. I just tested positive for this Omicron. I was meant to go on a plane tomorrow. I was meant to take a lot of lifts. I was meant to go out to a bunch of restaurants. I was meant to do a whole host of things over the next 10 days. I'm not doing that. I saw a headline this morning that Q4 growth is going to be halved have. We already had that happen in Q3. So I guess the question is maybe some of these stocks and maybe some of the weakness are reflecting the fact that there's going to be a whole heck of a lot of weakness two quarters in a, grow, a row, well below where they were expected to be. And maybe it just doesn't come back in Q1 the way people expect it to. And I go back to what Fed Chair Powell did last week. He lowered growth expectations for next year and he raised inflation expectations. So the longer we have this uncertainty, that little scenario of stagflation is going to be a problem for the stock market. And I think the fits and starts with consumers and some of these reopening trades is going to remain. This is the first that I'm hearing of Dan's positive test. So we hope you're you look good. Fine. You sound yeah. good. You sound course, just as salty as ever. Good. So I, I don't I don't think that yeah. you, you have many symptoms yet. Um, but Dan brings up a good point in terms of, you know, it's not necessarily the lockdown measures that that ultimately get put in place, if any. It's the behavioral changes that may be because of a positive test or maybe just because of concern about a potential positive test, Tim. And, and we're coming up against a year where things are strong on the consumer front. People are spending money. And I'm just wondering if, that, if that's a worry, that the comparisons just won't stack up because of this unexpected pullback in behavior. Well, look, concern for Dan, concern for everyone that's testing positive, and it's, it's a time of caution. Um, it's not a time of retreat. And, and I just think that we have a case here where we've been here, we've done that, and the biggest concerns are the Fed. Uh, I'll say it one more time. You know, more Fed equals more volatility. That's what I'm concerned about. I, I, I think the consumer spending patterns and, and the pent-up demand going into this holiday season, the holiday season numbers are going to be extraordinary. How much is priced in? You know, look at the retailer. Some of those retailers now have taken um, some hits where you've actually looked past that. I mean, look at a Best Buy. Um, I think the setup there is very interesting after we got um, some numbers that, that knocked the stock down almost 30 percent over the course of a month. Uh, and yet I, I think they have sustainable trends, especially across even some of their repeatable business, their total tech trade, but margins that are moving higher. I don't think the consumer changes overnight. I think the market is what we are concerned about. We are concerned about liquidity, but we are concerned about the Fed forces. Markets don't behave well when there's a tightening process. I think that gets us into next year um, where I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, but Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen overnight. All right. Well, as stocks catch a break, Punstrad is out with its 2022 market outlook. The forecast calls for new highs, but it may not be a smooth sailing and they may not come right away. Let's bring in Fast Money friend Tom Lee. Tom's a managing partner of Fundstrat and a CNBC contributor. Tom, always good to see you. Um, ultimately, you're calling for a pretty good year next year, 11 percent or so. But all the gains are going to be in the back half. What happens in the first half? Uh, I think the market's going to struggle with a lot of things you guys just talked about in the first half. You know, it's uh, the supply chain glitches and the way it affects both GDP growth and perceptions of inflation. 
And we've got the midterm elections that really won't have any visibility until the second half. We've got the Fed tightening, and that liftoff might occur at the end of the first half. But in front of that, markets are going to be nervous. And we, of course, have COVID and the various variants and mutations kind of rolling through the both the U.S. and the rest of the world. Um, so I, I think in the first half, it would make sense for markets to be flatter down. But the second half, I think we, we end up having pretty much a, you know, a, a traditional bull market rally. Hey, Tom, it's Tim. How, how about the stocks? And we've talked about this on the show where we've made mention of below the surface. There's a, a lot of stocks that have been in, in heavy bear markets. So beyond correction, um, are, are these stocks that can recover faster in that choppy first half you're talking about. So some of the high multiple tech names, but not necessarily even that, even some of the industrial names. Uh, again, parts of the market that are down 20, 30, 45 percent off of 52-week highs. Uh, yeah, Tim, I, I, I mean, I think there's going to be some relief um, in January because, you know, Omicron came in and, you know, in just a matter of two weeks, went from essentially zero percent of cases to 73 percent. And as you know, in South Africa, it, it burned out after 25 days. So I, I think we're going to be sort of relieved when that happens. And it should help a lot of stocks that got annihilated over the past couple of weeks on the heels of that. But, you know, with, will those names bounce and, and hold their gains through the end of 2022? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I just my guess would be first half of 2022 will be very defensive, large cap and defensive. Hey, Tom, it's Jeff Mills. I, I had a quick question. I think your view is that inflation trends a little bit lower next year. I was just wondering what you thought about the impact on commodity prices and then ultimately what that means for the energy sector. I know that you're, you're pretty positive on energy going into next year. Yeah, energy is one of our top three groups. Uh, you know, that's because there's a structural shortage of oil um, production versus demand. But I, I think a lot of the inflation we're seeing in 2021 is goods related? You know, four, five out of the five of the six categories contributing to inflation growth are things like used cars, autos, apparel, home furnishing. Just those five are two percentage points of inflation this year. So I think that's what sort of weakens. It's not necessarily commodity prices because commodities are, end up being inputs onto that. But you know, I, I think oil prices actually are going to distinguish themselves and, and probably rise actually. Tom, amazing work as always. You know, so a couple of these resource names are getting off the mat at a very interesting time in terms of everything we've just talked about. What does that tell you? I'm not looking to play stock market here, but you know, the resource trades to me significant. You know, talk about this global growth dynamic. Does that make sense? Are these stocks telling us something? Uh, you know, basic material stocks only can rise when they sort of sniff better growth. I do think it's encouraging. I mean. I would say one of the surprises in the last couple of days has been the, the, the rally and things that are heavily, heavily impacted by both economic sensitivity and by COVID. And, you know, maybe the market is already starting to bottom and discounting the fact that Omicron's going to peak soon. But if it is, you know, there'll be a lot of relief because, you know, if you don't have a big rise in mortality, COVID is becoming less dangerous. I mean, I think that's that could be one of the positives that emerge from this. We know you like energy, as you mentioned, uh, for next year, Tom. You also had, you liked it last year, and that was an epic call. Um, energy is the top performing sector year to date. And so you're saying in this new note that healthcare is positioned the same way energy is, which would imply a huge rally in next year. What sets up for that? 
Uh, they, they, you know, we were looking at relative performance, and you know, energy's relative performance argument last year was that the ten-year stretch into into 2021 was one of the worst ever. You know, in fact, we kind of joke that you have to go back to like the whale oil days to find a worse time to own energy stocks. And so energy equities became orphans, but the fundamentals were, were better. And we saw that in 2021. Healthcare has a similar setup, you know, that these groups had a, a huge derating of their PE, but earnings growth has actually been, you know, pretty impressive and, and they are somewhat inflation resistant. So I think that the, there's a potential for their earnings to recover and PE to expand, and that would look a lot like energy in 2021. And, you know, possibly, I mean, I think FANG has the same setup. So I think, you know, FANG and healthcare could have one of those 20, 30% kind of years. Wow. Tom, good, good to see you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. So FANG and healthcare top performers next year. Dan, you buy that? Yeah, I mean, I said it last night. I'd, I'd love to see Fang or whatever I call him, a QQQ. Um, I'd love to see it get hit really hard, get back to an oversold level that it actually had been in on numerous occasions over the course of 2021. Go back to uh, Q1 of this year. Remember how poorly the mega cap tech trade? Apple was down 20% from its highs in January to its lows in uh, February and March. I'd love to see that sort of action. That would be a bit more constructive. And then it also add the XBI, you know, Carter had a note out, Carter Braxtonworth of mm-hmm. Ward Trading this morning, um, talking about the XBI. He actually sees what Tom sees in healthcare. He sees a great technical setup for a bounce um, next year. So that's one I'm going to keep an eye on, too. Yeah, I think it was a relative bottom to the broader healthcare sector. It's money in 2022 is what Carter Worth said of Worth Charting. Um, Guy, you like that? You like the setup here for, for an XBI or IBB? I do. A big cap pharma. Listen, some of these names have obviously languished. As I've said, my wife works at Merck. That stock has been under considerable pressure. But Bristol Myers getting off the mat. Look what that stock's done over the last couple of weeks from 53 up to 61. Eli Lilly, I think, is going to take another run at its all time high. So I think big cap pharma is absolutely a place you can be early next year. Coming up, Jack Dorsey dropping some feisty comments when it comes to Web3, and it sent the internet into a tailspin. What his hot take says about the stocks in the space, but first, the chips are ripping higher. Is it time to dip into some of these names, the trade, and much more when Fast Money returns? You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chips are ripping higher today. Take a look at the semiconductor ETF, SMH, jumping more than 3%, 3.6. Shares of Micron leading the space after the company's earnings report yesterday. The stock's seeing its best day since April 2020. B of A also upgrading this one. NVIDIA also jumping higher after being named a top pick by UBS. 
I mean, after the big run it's had, it seems uh, that that would be amazing if it kept going, Tim. <laughs> well, the, you know, the stock pulled back about 16 percent off those uh, those November 18th results, which were good, but not extraordinary. And again, it was around data center, it was around some AI and, and, and even gaming. So, I mean, I think these are the places you expect to see continued growth. Uh, leading edge chips, uh, they do have a lot of competition. We've talked about AMD starting to get very much involved in the in the AI, uh, you know, in the in the meta chip world and, and the things that have actually been part of the valuation driver. It seems that NVIDIA always is the one that investors in the market defaults to is having um, at least those leading edge thematic chips. And therefore, the multiple 40 to depending on how you want to look at this one. I mean, it, there, there are a lot of analysts that take a, an $11 a share earnings out in 25, discount it back and get you to a 40 times multiple. I think that's cheating. I think the stock's probably 55 times earnings, and that's very expensive. But I, I, it's probably going higher. NVIDIA has always been and always has gone where the market wants to be in terms of the next big trend, whether it be crypto, metaverse, AI, gaming, et cetera. Jeff Mills, where are you in the uh, in the chip space? There is a, a big divergence. I don't want to say big because it's I mean, it's been a winning sector overall. But you got like the intels of the world, even the microns until today, you know, until today's performance that that were more that were underperformed relative to the sector. No, that's right. I would say, generally speaking, I like the chip space just because I think next year you want secular growth, you want profitability. I know I keep talking about it. I think you get it, by and large, uh, in chips. We've actually been adding in semiconductor equipment. So looking at a chart like AMAT, it looks really good right now. I think it got ahead of itself. It's traded sideways for a while. It then broke out, retested that level. So I think a stock like that is poised to go higher. And just from a fundamental perspective, I think this theme of decentralization in terms of the semiconductor supply chain, you know, becoming more regional, more manufacturing plants, more equipment needed, I think that's great for a stock like AMAT. And unlike maybe a KLA or a LAM Research, AMAT has significant share in all sorts of segments in manufacturing. So maybe sort of less exciting. You're not talking about metaverse and VR and AR, but a stock in the space that is tread water for, for the better part of seven months that I think is ready to make a move. KLAC also getting an upgrade today, by the way, from Wells Fargo. I heard a chip analyst talking about chips in general uh, in terms of feeding into the biggest trends, calling chip makers the arms dealers. And so if chip makers are the arms dealers, I don't know what you call the chip equipment makers guy, but where, where do you want to be on that chain? Enablers. I don't know. I haven't never been an arms dealer. I don't Me know neither. what <laughs> the term would be. But I'll tell you about AMAT quickly. And Jeff Mills is spot on because Dan talked about this. Stock traded up to 159, pulled back to prior support 143. And now I think it's set up to make a new all-time high. So I think AMAT is number one. I just like saying clack because it sounds cool. And the Giants used to have a guy named Jim Clack, I believe, that was a center. But I died. Listen, as I usually do, I digress. I will tell you, if you're looking for a chip stock that's still cheap and has pulled back from a recent all-time high, it's Qualcomm. And I think J.P. Morgan just added to some sort of focus list or whatever they call it there, an analyst list. I think that stock at 16 times next year's numbers is still too cheap. Dan? Yeah, I like the foundries, Mel, and we're going to cover it all right here. Uh, Global Foundries, this went public recently um, back in October and in another one. And I know Tim is all over this one in Taiwan Semi. I think you're going to see breakouts in Taiwan Semi early next year at some point. And then Global Foundries is going to be, um, I just think, a $33 billion market cap for this company, given where semis are and some of the trends that Jeff was just talking about. um, That's where I'd want to be. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. 
Dorsey drama. Once again, Jack is stirring the pot. Former Twitter CEO dismissing Web3 and starting an uproar on social. His comments next. And later, one of the newest members of the S&P 500, Fact Set, out with earnings this morning. And the CEO joins us live to break down the results. You're watching Fast Money. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Jack Dorsey causing a major stir on Twitter today, taking aim at Web3 and the metaverse and warning investors it might not be all that it's cracked up to be. The former Twitter CEO tweeting, you don't own Web3, the VCs and their LPs do. It will never escape their incentives. The tweet getting a lot of likes, but also a lot of pushback, notably from Corey Dixon of venture capital firm A16Z, who said, I am a huge fan of Jack and hope we can eventually bring him around to ETH and other blockchains. For more on the saga of Web3 and the decentralized Internet, the opportunity that may lie there, let's bring in Jeffrey's technology analyst, Brent Thild. Brent, um, good to have you with us. What do you, what do you make of the criticism? I think Jack's right. I think, look, the hype around Web3 is so huge in our industry. Uh, the metaverse is coming up in every transcript of every tech company we cover. And so ultimately, I side with Jack that I think the hype is, is probably a little ahead of the time. Again, this is going to take three to five years to play out. Um, but on uh, to back what the VCs are saying, you know, Twitter hasn't exactly been super innovative. Uh, when you look at the innovation that's going on in Snap and in Facebook, for example, incredible innovation in Twitter really hasn't seen it. And it led, obviously, to a change in the senior management team. So I, I think uh, ultimately this is a three to five year journey. We're at the beginning of it. There's real excitement. There's going to be some really cool companies come out of the private world. Uh, but I do think the hype is a little bit ahead. And, and there's some great you know, public uh, stories to own uh, right now that, that can bridge the gap between where we're at in the Internet today uh, to the next generation, wherever we end up. Uh, we have a handful of names that we like at the firm. At Jeffries, you're part of a team that covers the, the opportunities in the metaverse. And I'm wondering, you know, if in the team's estimation there is metaverse fluff in any valuations or are investors, have investors been smart enough to know that this is an opportunity that is way out and maybe should not be priced in yet? Or do you think it should be priced in right now? I don't think there's a lot of fluff in current uh, names right now. So take example, Adobe, Snap, Facebook, NVIDIA. I think many of these names are, are actually fairly reasonably valued. 
Uh, so I don't think there's a lot in them. Should there be? Over time, I think there should be. Uh, if you look at a name like Adobe, when Steve Jobs was alive, he was bashing Adobe Flash. Everyone thought Adobe was dead at $30, and the stock has had a, a tremendous run. They have created this version of the Internet. We think Adobe will be part of creating the next generation of whatever the Internet looks like three to five years. So that's a great name that we don't believe is overvalued. That's had a recent haircut that we'd be buying uh, on this pullback. Hey, Brent, first things first, aren't we confusing a couple things here? So Chris Dixon is not talking about the metaverse. He's talking about decentralized platforms. He's talking about creators being to monetize their data, right, in, in, in a decentralized sort of fashion using tokens and different incentive structures, that sort of thing. So to me, I don't think this has much to do with the metaverse and what Adobe and some of these centralized platforms. I think Jack's criticism is kind of interesting coming from a guy who uh, obviously founded a very centralized social media company and now runs, uh, obviously, founded Square, Block, or whatever the heck it's called, a very centralized for a peer-to-peer -peer payment sort of thing. Aren't we kind of confusing a couple different things here? Well, I think there's a lot of definitions of what this is going to look like, what, what the next generation, the web, internet, metaverse uh, is going to look like. And again, I think our view is a lot of these companies that are existing are, are going to be part of that fabric of creating this next generation. I don't think we go completely decentralized. I think if you look at the internet, look at the walled gardens. You know, who's really taken on Facebook, uh, uh, Google, Amazon, a handful of these? Not that many, right? There's a handful of stories and, and the rest have not mattered. So ultimately, I, I don't believe, uh, again, there's going to be a current generation of companies that, that's going to control this. We think many of these names in the existing industry will control. And yeah, there's going to be some great success stories that come out of this, but I, I don't believe. Uh, Again, they're going to be as many as the VCs are touting. Hey, Brent, it's Tim. So, again, just getting into the theory here, because I think it's important for investors and especially the folks watching this show to understand what the differences are. And, again, one of the criticisms is this is just 2.0 with a different label. I'll go at it from the monetization side. Um, do you think in a world that we are more decentralized and at least um, theoretically that's that's a place that actually may be more consumer advantageous? Uh, are, are, are the same players or, you know, again, I know you talked about companies that may be part of that next wave. I worry that the monetization of 3.0 is a totally different space in that inherent in that is less monetization. And that's good for consumers. Uh, per perhaps I think ultimately, again, when you look at, uh, again, Snap is a place we went to to visit. And ultimately, I think it's going to place we're going to actually transact and exchange goods, whether it's NFTs, whether we try and you know, clothing from Polo Ralph Lauren, pay them direct uh, in a direct consumer relationship. I, I think today it's largely a communication platform for the younger audience to use. I think that shifts. And so I think ultimately a lot of these platforms we cover are, are morphing and adapting to that. And is there suddenly going to be, you know, 30 companies that are born out of this that are going to be incredible? They're going to be great, great stories. But I think a lot of the existing stories are already going to be part of this. So I, I'm, I'm taking, uh, again, the view of, a lot of the existing stories are going to stay with us and, and capture this next generation uh, from, from what we can see so far. It sounds, I mean, with the, with the Snap example, Brennan, it sounds almost like you think that a lot of, or at least the, the notion that we have of Web3 right now and, and what the metaverse could shape up to be is sort of a convergence of what these companies will offer. I mean, if, if Snap is going to ultimately be a place where you exchange goods and Nike is going to the metaverse to trade goods as well, I mean, that that seems like it, it's it's transactional, like the metaverse is going to be transactional, whether it be for services like gambling or for goods like NFTs. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think, look, there's multiple angles on this. There's software, there's semis, mm-hmm. there's, there's payments. Uh, there's, uh, there's numerous ways to own this transition, whatever your definition is. And there's so many different definitions of what this is going to look like. We think there's going to be winners out of each of those categories. And so what we're trying to identify across our tech team, across each of the sectors, is our, 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 who, who's going to win. NVIDIA and semis, Facebook and Snap and the platforms to visit, Adobe and creating those worlds in unity which creates the software to, 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 to build. There's obviously going to be a whole host of financial and, and payment providers, including you know Shopify, which is, again, dominating a lot of the social platforms already. With two clicks, you can have anything you want to buy through Shopify. Hmm. So I, again, I, I look at it as, uh, yeah, there's going to be some interesting enabling technology that come out of these VCs in the private world, but many of these companies are already servicing. And again, I just go back to the, the same example of Adobe. Uh, as we've shifted from the old internet to the new internet, they, they were part of that. Whatever your definition of this is, uh, I think a lot of these companies are going to be along and, and be part of it. Brent, great to have you. Thank you, Brent Thill of, you. of Jefferies. I don't think um, we as a group, I certainly haven't thought of Adobe as a potential Web3 play guy. I don't know how you think about Web3 or if you think about it at all. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> trying to deal with web with, without the number on the back of it. So, yeah, yeah, no, just web. I mean, you should ask Dan this question. I mean, you want to ask me who was on the gag line or the French connection and for the Buffalo Sabres in the 70s? I'll talk all day. But NFTs and Web3 and Metaverse, that's outside of my scope. All right, uh, Jeff, I'll go to you because you actually have uh, members of your household on Roblox. So you, you have maybe a good grip on the metaverse at this point. How do you think about in terms of an opportunity, an investable opportunity today? Yeah, I, I do. And I've, I've seen what's going on with Roblox. I've actually bought it for my daughter's uh, uh, brokerage account. So you know, definitely getting involved there. But I think for the, the average investor, you know, there are ways to bet on you know, Web3 in the metaverse without, you know, betting the farm on some sort of like obscure token. So think about a name like EA. I mentioned it Friday, but EA gaming content creation. And I think it's a stock that's set up pretty good right now. Coming up, Chinese tech stocks bouncing higher today. How should you play these names? The details straight ahead. Plus a black and blue for BlackRock. Options traders are betting on a big move lower here. We'll dig into that trade straight ahead. Stick around. Much more fast money for you. Welcome back to Fast Money. China tech stocks bouncing back in a big way today. Pinduoduo, JD, Alibaba, others climbing more than the broader markets, although all still well off their 52-week highs. And take a look at the KWEB ETF posting its best day since October. Jeff, you're watching a key level. Yeah, and I'm less excited about it than maybe you would think initially at $40. It was, it was a ceiling for about three years, and then it was really strong support after that 40% drawdown at the end of 2018. So back to those levels, you might expect it to bounce, but it's about 10 PE turns more expensive than it was at that 2018 low. And I just think generally speaking, you need a re-rating given the policy regime now. And certain stocks have, Baba, Tencent. Their PE multiples have re-rated. JD, Baidu, not as much. So I'd be more focused on the stocks that have actually you know, discounted some of this additional risk. But if you look at the K-Web in general, uh, even though it's down so much and it should bounce off that level, still think the valuation might be a little high. This group has been decimated, Tim, as we have been covering on this show. Um, is, are the levels worth it at this point? I mean, if, if interest rates are rising, you don't want to be an EM. 
No, you don't. It's interesting. And EM is, is taking a pretty hefty hit off of just the component that is the China weighting. If you look at the EEM, it's down about 17 percent over the last six months um, and a downward, uh, a downward channel that, that looks really clearly defined right now. And, and I think if you think about the weighting um, of Tencent and Alibaba at one point, really, um, we're pushing that entire index down. So um, the valuation is cheaper. Great. Um, except for the fact that it's not about valuation, which is why I thought it was interesting that they traded down Baba on not great numbers. It's not about those numbers. It's about Big Brother. JD has proven to be not a threat uh, to the government and therefore has outperformed. Guy, are, are there some tradable stocks in here? Absolutely. Alibaba, you look at that 111 low it made a couple of weeks ago. I think, and Tim has said this, you can get back to 137 <laughs> literally in the name and still be in a downtrend from October of last year. So I think Alibaba is worth a trade, especially in the year end. Coming up, facts set on fire this year. The stock was just added to the S&P 500 yesterday. The CEO will join us exclusively straight ahead. Plus, options traders are betting against BlackRock. What bad news could be brewing here? We'll break down the trade for you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of FactSet climbing back and closing out in the green today after the company reported earnings. The stock, which just joined the S&P 500 yesterday, is now up more than 42 percent this year. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive interview is FactSet CEO Philip Snow. Hi, Phil. Good to have you with us. Yes, thanks for having me on, Melissa. Uh, by all accounts, it looked like a very strong quarter. You, you beat on EPS, you beat on revenue. I think the question here is, what we mentioned in the introduction, that is the run in the stock. You currently trade at a premium to a lot of your peers. And uh, while you did beat for your um, fiscal first quarter, you didn't raise guidance for the year. You stuck by your old guidance. So I'm wondering, what, what do you see next year in terms of catalysts that, that make you deserve the multiple you have right now? Well, we're very uh, pleased with our performance. We uh, set out on an investment plan a couple of years ago to really um, – accelerate our own digital transformation and invest in some new content sets. So we're beginning to see the results of those investments. Uh, we have, I think, good visibility going out six months, but typically Q4 is a big quarter for us. We're an August company, so we just felt it was good to be a bit conservative here and just wait to see uh, how things play out, particularly with some of the choppiness we've seen in the markets. Hey, hey, Phil, uh, thanks for joining us. When I think about that business, I think about the guidance that you just gave. You know, you've made some some moves over the last couple of years. You, you're making a push into wealth management. You bought Cobalt Systems to, to really expand into private markets. How do those new businesses factor into your growth plan going forward? Yeah, the wealth market's uh, really exciting for us. It's relatively new, but we've had some very visible wins with uh, large wealth firms and, and a lot of um, We've hit a lot of good singles and doubles and as well. So a lot of the growth you see uh, in our user count is a result of that. So because we've scaled our technology, we've been able to reach a lot more users. Uh, and we, we see the wealth uh, area is becoming a lot more sophisticated, uh, which um, I think is a good market for what traditionally has been more of an institutional product. Uh, and then you mentioned private markets. Facts that it's always done very well with public markets, but... Uh, like a lot of firms, we see a huge opportunity to invest uh, in private markets and apply all of the uh, expertise we have in managing data to different asset classes. Phil, uh, Melissa mentioned a multiple, and I understand that. But, you know, a lot of competitors make acquisitions. They pay up. You've made some tactical ones, but you look at the quarter, you're talking about 9.1% organic growth, which is pretty remarkable, I think. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's been the beauty of our business. Uh, we've grown primarily organically. 
Uh, we're experts at managing data. We've been able to keep one consistent platform and a consistent culture through the last 42 years. So we believe in reinvesting uh, in data and technology and just continuing to provide you know, fantastic software to our clients. So we're very proud of what we've been able to do organically. It doesn't mean that we're not willing to do larger acquisitions, but uh, there's a lot of benefit to having uh, one integrated platform, particularly moving forward the way things are going in the industry. Hey, Phil, Jeff Mills. Uh, so obviously a lot of professional investors use the platform. Are there any trends that you're seeing in terms of what they're asking for that might give you an idea, you know, major trends that you're seeing from individual investors, ESG, things of that nature? Yes. Yeah, so we see, I mean, ESGs in almost every conversation with institutional uh, investors, with asset owners, with wealth advisors. So uh, we've made uh, an acquisition about a year ago and through Value Labs, which we think is differentiating. We're going to continue to build out the coverage of that asset. Uh, but we think that, you know, ESG is going to be, uh, you know, part of everyone's investment process for, for a long time to come. Um, Phil, thank you so much. Uh, we use facts out here in CNBC, at CNBC. I rely on it. So <laughs> thanks so much. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Phil Snow, the CEO of FactSet. Tim, you like this one? I do. Look, I, I, I love the execution. And, and like you, I, pointed, I would point out just that the stock has had a huge run. I mean, it, it's, it's up 30% in the last six months or so. The multiple trades, you know, a three, three times turn to other, call them info, uh, sys software companies, et cetera. I, I think um, what Phil pointed out, though, and, and it's, it's notable, the, the commentary that they made, they're not afraid to invest uh, in new technology and new business, but they've actually seen accelerating gross margins. So some of those dynamics are paying off. Um, company trades at a premium, not to be penalized. Um, again, accelerating revenue and top line. I think the multiple is is rich, but the company that's that's a function of the company executing. Worth the premium, Jeff, in your view. Uh, listen, I think it has a wide moat, so that's very important. You mentioned you need your workstation. I need mine. You build out all of these things, so it's really hard to make a change. But at the same time, great business, expensive stock, it's already been said. So for me, it would be more of a hold than jumping in and buying right now. Yeah. Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that when you think about the, the expansion into some of these other areas, well, wealth management, private markets, I think there's probably an amazing opportunity as you think about retail, um, as you think about crypto. And these are all things that I'm sure have to be on the tip of their tongue as they're thinking about broadening out from institutions and wealth management and the like. So to me, listen, again, you know, I'm not a buyer of stocks at high multiples at levels like this. The stock just got added to the S&P 500. I suspect it's going to have a lot more coverage going forward, though. Coming up, the BlackRock Blues. Options traders are betting the world's largest asset manager could see some major downside in that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Blade. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And don't forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox at the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now with all the information on your screen. Meantime, check out shares of investing giant BlackRock getting a nice boost today. But one options trader is betting the company's fortunes could turn sour in the new year. Betting on a big drop in the stock. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, so take a look at BlackRock. It traded more than 24 times its average daily put volume today. And that was largely the result of the purchase of a large put spread the week of January 28th, the 747.20 put spread, that thing traded about 6,400 times. The buyer of that spread was spending about 65 cents for a 
wide put spread. Now, I don't know that they're necessarily making a huge bearish bet on BlackRock per se. This is a great proxy for risk assets more generally. And choosing the 28th is an interesting time frame right after regular way expiration. Why is that? Because we have the January FOMC meeting hmm. taking place on the 25th and 26th. This would signal to me a similar bet to a 15% downside bet on the S&P. That's interesting. Uh, Guy, what do you make of BlackRock? January 14th, I think they're due to report earnings. It's interesting. It trades at a market multiple about 21 times next year. The stock is just sort of lower left, upper right, 12 13% EPS growth. But this is a pretty interesting play. You know, you wonder if this is a bearish bet on the broader market. <clears throat> I love Coco Beware when he drops this stuff. That's why I tune in to OA every Friday evening at 5.30 p.m. Either that or you have your VCR tape in the machine, right? Well, yeah, that. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show next Friday. We're off this Friday for the Christmas Eve holiday, but next Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, your final trades. It is time for the final trade, so let's go around the horn. Tim. So back to semiconductors, the, the conversation that introduced Taiwan Semi, I totally agree. Look, this is a very important company globally. In fact, arguably, maybe one of the most important. But more importantly, they have pricing power in leading technology. It's not just foundry business. And this stock, I think, is underappreciated for how much pricing power they have. Jeff Mills, the general. I'll go back to the Web3 discussion, Electronic Arts. I've been talking about it for a few days now, but up yesterday on a risk-off tape, up today, uh, definitely the opposite of that. So I just think there's a momentum shift in the stock after hitting off 120, definitely room higher. Dan, do you have your finger in an jar tonight? No, I had to throw that out, though, too, Mel. I should have used a spoon. Um, here's the deal. Check. I'm starting to kick the tires on this one. Maybe it just got too beaten up. It's down 65%. Great management. Um, expected to be back at peak earnings and sales next year. Trades 25 times earnings. This one looks cheap to me. Maybe it's so bad it's good down here. Guy. Mel, if you had a moat, would you want it wide and shallow or no. really short and deep? I'm just curious. Oh, those are the only. I would want it wide and deep. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, that's the, You're that's, asking. I mean, that's the prototypical moat. Uh, AMAT did a huge back and fill back to prior support. Jeff Mills is correct. AMAT. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.